You guys can grab a seat. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab it. If you don't, we have some around. Uh, every Sunday would be a good Sunday, but this especially would be a good Sunday to have your Bibles. Uh, I want you to see some specific things. Um, kids, are you already gone? I think they've already gone. All right. Uh, I was going to dismiss the kids. Yeah, but they're already gone. They cannot stand to hear my voice, evidently. So as you're flipping, go, well, you don't know where you're flipping. Isaiah is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, as you're flipping, I want to have a quick word of welcome to two different groups of people here. Uh, first off, we got our Millie crew. Um, so guys that don't know, we helped plant a church last year. Uh, Milledgeville people, stand up. So these are some of the guys and girls that have helped start the church, and there's more Millie people that can stand up, not just the guys. All right, so thank you guys for all the work that you guys are doing in Milledgeville. I know the gospel is doing incredible things, so thank you. Also, uh, we've got the Zwimkies over here. Um, so Rod has been, is it official or am I going to ruin it? Okay, so he has just now uh, resigned from the church plant strategist for association, but uh, from the beginning of the church plant until now, Rod has walked us through every single bit of it. He's prayed for us. He's given counsel. Uh, all the times that I wanted to run and die under a rock, Rod was like, no, it's not that bad. Um, <laughs> this man has done nine years, 10 years. How long did y'all do portable setup? Nine and a half. So all you grumblers, shut up. They've done it for nine and a half years. If you're new to the branch, I apologize. Welcome. <laughs> That was not for you, but Zwimkis, thanks for being here. Those are, he's on a well-deserved sabbatical, and um, so we're glad to see them here and can worship with us. So um, Isaiah is where we're going to be. If you're new here, we're going through a summer series about the attributes of God. So trying to answer this massive question, who is God? Uh, now, this question is massive nonetheless. So we've had a, uh, what we're basically trying to do is look at his attributes to de determine who he is and what he does, what he's like. I mean, we've kind of likened this to, to two different kinds of knowledge, right? So we have an objective knowledge, a head, weight, scholarly kind of knowledge of God that we see in Scripture. And we must know that. We must study that. We must memorize that. If we want to know who God is, we must go to the Scripture. But the other side of that is more of a subjective knowledge. So now that we know this, how does this play out into our lives? What does this mean for us? If the gospel is good news, why is it good? So what we've been trying to do is balance both of those because if we're not careful, we can swing the pendulum way over here in the objective knowledge and have a bunch of facts and a bunch of Bible verses. and We have all these things memorized, but we're cold and callous and not warming to anyone that doesn't know God. We turn into a pride, arrogant kind of group of people that we know everything, how dare you not know. But if the pendulum swings too far over here, where all we have is subjective knowledge of God, that, oh, God loves me, it doesn't matter, all this other stuff, I just know that he loves me. While that is true, all the other stuff is just as true. So we've got to stay right in the middle that we want to preach who God is, but we also want to know how it changes the way we live. The Westminster Catechism says that, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So glorify God, the objective knowledge, God deserves all glory, all praise, all honor, but also enjoy him forever, that this should stir up in us loving emotion for God the Father. And we see this through Jesus, right? That when he comes, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So what we saw through Jesus was this subjective, um, they had heard, they have read stories of God, but they got to see how God interacted to men and women 
every day while he was doing ministry. So that was a balance of the objective and subjective knowledge of God. Now, we've kind of given this warning, but I definitely have to give this warning today. Matt Thomas, back there with this beautiful haircut, said a couple years ago as he was preaching, if we understand all that God is, we don't understand God. So as we walk into this sermon this morning, we have to embrace a level of mystery. We have to know that if, we, if I could clearly articulate all that God is and all that he does, I myself would be God. And this would be a scary world if that was true. So there are going to be things that I'm going to point to Scripture and go, I don't know. That's why I want all of you to have your Bibles. I want you to be writing down these Bible verses. Um, this is not in any way my opinions, my thoughts, but we're trying to get this straight from Scripture. So, so here's two warnings in that. One, there might be some things that are said this morning or in this series that just kind of, ah, uh, I don't know about that. That just doesn't make sense. I think you're wrong. Well, here's, here's two things. That's fine. One, go to Scripture. But two, Proverbs 4.12 says that there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. So don't always trust your conscience when it comes to things of God. Because we all know that our conscience, that our, our inner being has led us astray more times than we can count. So as we're wrestling through some of this, make sure that, that you're getting your facts from Scripture, not just your own opinion. And then the second warning, the second caveat this morning is it's okay to have mystery. It's okay to have some, I don't know how this all works itself out. That's perfectly fine. I mean, we could all go through that there's things that you were 100% convinced of a year ago that now you totally disagree with. So for us as finite human beings, thinking that we know everything there is to know about God this morning is just untrue. Uh, Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. One of the surest signs of true regeneration is that we love God for who he is, not who we want him to be. Let me read that one more time. One of the surest signs of true regeneration is when we love God for who he is, not who we want him to be. So last week was Father's Day, and after the sermon, my wife never gives me critiques, but she said, hey, you, you told too many jokes last week. It was Father's Day. Can I not get some dad jokes on Father's Day? Um, she's not here this morning, so forget all that. Just kidding. This morning, though, is going to be a little bit different of a sermon than, than normal. Uh, what I mean is I'm going to be a little bit more on the teaching side than the preaching side. I'm going to be reading more than telling jokes more. We're going to get in deep to some things that, that just for the subject of this uh, need to be read, not said. So if it gets a little too deep halfway through, I'll break into a commercial break and tell a couple jokes and then we'll get back in. Sound good? All right. Isaiah 46, we're going to pick it up in verse 8. Isaiah 46, we're going to pick it up in verse 8 and just read three Three quick verses, three, four, pray, and dive right into it. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. That's four. Oh, we might stop at 10. Isaiah 46, pick it up, verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to your mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, if you're taking notes, if you're, if you're underlining your Bible, underline that, all my purpose. Because this morning we're going to dive deep into this purpose. What is the purpose of God? So let's pray. 
And Father, as we dive into your word this morning, Father, we want to know you. We want to see you in everything. We want to worship you. We want to give you the glory that you deserve. And so, Father, one of the best ways that we know how is to study your word, is to talk about it. And Father, but would you speak, would this not be my words, would this not be old dead guy's words, would this not be our opinions, Father, but would you make yourself known to us this morning? Because we, we need to, we have to know you and your character, your love for us. It's only in your name that we pray, amen. So the idea, the attribute of God that we're trying to discover this morning is God's decree or decrees, singular, plural, they're all kind of the same thing, God's decree. So um, end of verse 10, my purpose, another way to say that is my decree, here's what I'm here for. So there's, there's two definitions I want to give. One, um, all the way back to 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, so this is a document over 300 years old that as Baptists we still cling to, we still learn from, that, that time and truth, one of my mentors told me, time and truth go hand in hand. And so this truth has still been hold firm over the last 300 years. Now this is a group of men that have come together to write this based solely on the authority of Scripture. So I'm not trying to say that this is authoritative by no means, but this shines good light on what God is telling us, or what, what man is telling us about God. So um, we're going to read it. I think it'll be up here. There it is. Here is how they define God's decree. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs. So if you just kind of want to get your mind around, he's going to explain the rest of that. But from all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of creatures or take away the free working or contingency or secondary causes or second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. And the decree God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. Now, if we're all good, I will say amen and we can go home. We're good? I mean, you, you think I'm playing. <laughs> I will go home right now if we understand God's decree. But let me give one other definition. John Piper wrote a Baptist catechism, and here's how he explained it. What are the decrees or the decree of God? Here's the answer. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. And you can see the scriptures there. And here's how you may shorten it to God's decree or his own plans for history, and they always happen. So what we're talking about here is the decrees of God that he has foreordained everything that will come to pass, everything that will happen, that nothing surprises him, nothing catches him off guard. And the decree is very clear in a couple different attributes of his decree that we want to talk about. But I just have to kind of make this real before we dive into some of the, the weeds of this. Um, yesterday, we were down, the North American Mission Board sent my family down to, uh, what's it, not Wilderness, Great Wolf Lodge, it's an indoor water park. This thing is fantastic. It was awesome. We had so much fun. Um, but 
as we were standing in line and our kids were giggling and having a lot of fun, I'm sitting here thinking about this sermon, thinking about the implications of God's decree. And here's what hit me. It just led me to worship in the middle. I mean, I probably looked like a goober just singing in the middle of this line, getting on this water park thing. But, but God took care of that, my joy in that moment. That if this doctrine is true, that even the little details of having four kids and standing in this line at the Great Wolf Lodge, which we paid nothing for, God orchestrated all of that, not for my own eternal happiness, but for his glory, that I got to stand there and sing and worship and make memories with my kids, that he got to get all the glory from that. So we start fleshing some of this stuff out, that this is not a purposeless life that we're living, that God has a purpose for every single thing. And we can go good, we can even go bad. When my father-in-law passed away of a sudden heart attack in 2014, that God had a purpose for that that he decreed that, that there's a reason for that happening. Now, we're going to get into, there's already, I can already see a lot of questions going on in your mind, and praise God for that. But big picture, overall, what would we want more? The God of the universe orchestrating everything to happen, or him just kind of going, y'all figure it out? Ultimately, that is the question that we're wrestling with this morning. Would we rather have the God that designed everything, that orchestrated everything, to have the final say in how things happen, or would we rather live in a life of chance and purposeless anger, purposeless crime, purposeless pain? So, if you have your Bibles, flip over real quick to Genesis, because this is one of the most obvious places that we see God's decree take place. So basically, split between God's providence and God's creation, and, and here we see in Genesis 1 just the most obvious way of God's decree taking place. Genesis 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the water. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God decrees it happened. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters, and there was under the expanse of the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called this expanse heaven. And there, it was evening, and there was morning the second day. And we could keep reading through the creation story. God said, and there was. God decreed, and it happened. And there was no counsel, there was no opinion, there was no man changing his view, changing his opinions. He wasn't seeking outside information on how to do it. God decreed it, and it happened. So with that as the framework for God's decree, that he speaks, and it happens. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no outside counsel let me get into some of the weeds of what it actually looks like for us. And again, welcome to the mystery zone. There's going to be some things in here I can't cover completely because I am man. But we're going to try our best to see what it is and then at the end circle around and see how this affected Jesus' life as well. So the first thing that we see about God's decrees is that they're singular and unconditional. 
So God's decrees the way that he speaks things into happen. He speaks things to existence. God's purposes are singular and unconditional. And here's what this means. The 1689 Confession of Faith puts it this way. Without reference to anything outside himself, he did this by the perfect, wise, and holy counsel of his own will. And here's how Ephesians 1.11 would put it. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God works all things to his own counsel. It is a singular idea that he is working everything together. He's not looking at outside sources and outside resources to help decide what he then should do. It is all singular. It is up to God in himself to decree everything into existence, to decree every decision, to decree everything. Now, there's been some popular pushback to this. One would be that God could be inside and outside of time at the same time, seeing what we decide, seeing what man decides, then coming back outside of time and, and saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do because of the men's choices. Well, here's a quick quote on that. I don't see it. Cool, I'll come back to that quote. Uh, here it is. All that happens in time and eternity is according to the will of the one who made both. So all that happens in time and eternity is according to the will of those who made both. So this idea that God can go back and forth, that there's at some point a knowledge that he does not have, so he has to go into time to see how things play out, is not God. There's another thought that, that there's an expansive number of universes that, that he created all of them and then he picked the one that would give him the most glory, that would bring him the most praise. But at the same time, we have to go, but wouldn't that mean that there's things that God does not know? And if God is God, if he's created everything, is there a way that he cannot know something that's happening in his creation? Well, no, that would just not make him God. Think about this. If God watches how we react and then he changes, doesn't that in part make us God? Doesn't that make us be able to control God and his character and his, what he does? So if we really careful, we say, okay, but, but this makes me uncomfortable that God decrees everything, that everything is made by him, everything is commanded by him. Yeah, but the inverse is more uncomfortable, the fact that we could be God. That by our actions, by what we do, we could change the hand of history. That we could change, we could manipulate God because of how we act or how we react. That there are things and certain things that he does not know. And Ephesians 1.11 just puts it perfectly. That he works everything according to the counsel of his will. Not to the counsel of what we do, not to the counsel of how we react in certain situations. He does this all according to his will. Isaiah 46, 11. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. There, there's nothing else in that definition. I have spoken, I will do it. That's just it. And I know that this starts to rub us a little raw, and I'll answer some of those questions. But we can't argue with Isaiah 46. I have spoken, I will do it. I have purposed it, I will bring it to pass. Now, if we start to get to the emotional side of it, isn't, aren't we glad that we don't make all these decisions? Aren't we glad that it's not solely up to us on how things are going to play itself out? I mean, that's just a pressure that should be released from us. So the second thing we see about God's decrees are they are comprehensive and universal. They are comprehensive and universal. 
And here's what I mean by that. First, they're universal, that nothing happens outside of God's decrees, and everything happens inside of his perfect working decrees. In the same verse we just read, Ephesians 1.11, according to the purpose of him who works all things. All things is a very comprehensive. It isn't some things. It isn't the majority of things that God in his universal decree decrees all things. And I was listening and, and researching about this. This one guy talked about his professor in college, and uh, as they were going back and forth on this, he said, well, God doesn't decree all things. And so the guy said, well, okay. The student said, professor, if God doesn't decree all things, um, how much does he decree? And the professor said, oh, 40%. Now, obviously, the professor was making a joke, and they were kind of laughing about it, but, but we have to kind of go there, that, it, that what is it that he does and doesn't? Because if we are students of the word, that we don't see any paradigm for anything else other than God decrees all things, that he's in control of all things. True hermeneutical reading of scripture, meaning from Genesis to Revelation, what is the one story that is being told is that God is in charge of all things. Isaiah 46.10, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. This all is not subjective. It is big all. God decrees all things and brings all things to purpose his will, his glory. It's all things. So God's decree is universal, but it's also comprehensive. Um, another way that we could think this is it's God's providence. How does God providentially make all this happen? Because I know, and I'm going to answer this question in a little bit, doesn't this make us a robot like if God decrees all things, if God is in control of all things, then how are we not robotic in this? And I will get there. But God's providence is God's activity to uphold, direct, and govern everything he has created. So let me just kind of go through. I'm going to read these really fast. If you want some of the scripture references, I'll, I'll give them to you. Um, God's purpose in his decree to oversee every detail of creation. He details chance happenings, 1 Kings 22 and Job 5.6. The details of our lives, Job 14.5, Psalm 139, Matthew 10. He, de he providences, he decrees the affairs of nations, the free actions of human beings, the sinful actions of human beings, good and evil events, and the final destruction of the wicked. Nothing is outside of God's decree. There's no chance. There's no luck. There's no God forgot about me. There's no God as an ambulance driver showing up to try to fix the situation that we have broken. He is in charge of it all. I mean, I told our missional community, and, and I probably shouldn't say it here because I don't know where I'm quite on all of this, but I've been reading some biographies of some old dead guys, and the way that they cast it a lot to see how God wanted them to do just kind of blows my mind. And we see this, how Judas died, right? Judas hung himself. Well, how do, the, how do they pick the 12th disciple, the 12th apostle? They, they casted lots. And so this idea of God's decree, and I'm not, I'm not, this is not prescriptive. I'm not saying go home and like just get some dice and write on it and roll it every time. Like, no, there's true God wisdom in scripture, true godly wisdom in counsel of others. But the even chance is decreed by God. That there's nothing that we can do to run outside of. One of the things I hear more often than not, especially in the college context, is I just don't want to get outside of God's will. You think you can do that? Like, you think you have the power and the authority to escape from what God has you to do. That if we're praying, if we're seeking his face, if we're running after him, you are in his will. 
there's a comprehensive language that the providence is taking place that nothing is outside of God's control. That should bring a comfort to us. The third thing that we see in God's decree is that they are eternal. The 1689 says, from all eternity, God has decreed everything that occurs. From all eternity, God has decreed everything that occurs. I have a stopwatch over here, and it stopped. And for your good, I'm going to turn it back on so I don't keep rambling. Right? So eternity, God has decreed everything from eternity. Now, here's, here's kind of the framework for this. Eleven times in the New Testament, Jesus says, or God says, before the foundations of the world, before the foundations of the earth, an eternity past, all of these things were decided. So God, as an eternal God, before eternity and after eternity, has decreed all things to take place. Here's, here's just a couple scriptures for us. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to holy calling, because not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Revelation 22.13, that I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So he's decreed all things and made them eternal from eternity before, from eternity now. Only someone that is eternal can create something that is eternal. Does that make sense? Only someone that is eternal can create something that is eternal. Everything we do, everything that we own is going to be thrown in the fire. It's going to be sold in a yard sale. Nothing we do is going to last, but God is eternal. John 17, 24. This is Jesus. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. So as we're reading through the New Testament, just pay attention to how many times, 11 times, before the foundation of the world, all of this was decreed, all of this was decided. Can I just tell you what made my ears bleed this week? Literally, like the brain was goozing out of my ears. TMI, okay. We are sequential human beings, right? Everything we do is A plus B equals C. Everything we do is reactionary. I'm hungry. I'm going to go eat. I want to have this job, so I need to go to school. Everything we do is very sequential in thought and nature. But that is man. That is limited view. Everything that God does is done. That he doesn't think, that he doesn't consider, that he doesn't weigh the consequences, that for him isn't a sequential event, that God is God. There's no one like him. So one decision, one thought, boom, it happens. So the way that our limited mind and finite universe has to understand this looks sequential, but it wasn't. That it wasn't Adam and Eve sinned, oh man, what am I going to do? But scriptures say, no, he decreed all of that for the purpose of his glorious grace so that he would get the glory for it. So he is an eternal being that decrees everything eternal. Y'all having fun yet? You can fire me after this if you want to. Number four, God's decrees are either efficacious or permissive. Here we go. Here's some big language. They're either direct or they're permissive. Now here's where some of the mystery might become a little bit more clear for us in this time. Is it nice and warm in here? Just kind of getting some like nap time going? Okay. I don't know how to make it colder. I can leave. Maybe that would leave the heat of the room. Oh. Hey, that was a commercial break. Coming back. Brought to you by Axe Body Spray. Bro. All right. 
that we are at the 27-minute mark. Oh, my gosh, we're not going to finish this. God's decrees are either efficacious, they're direct, or they're permissive. And here's the first one that we'll read. As a direct decree, he directly brings about causes things. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And so all throughout Scripture, we see the direct decree of God over and over and over again. Let it be, and it was, the flood. I mean, any war, any battle in the Old Testament, God decrees it, it happens. It is the direct plan of God. And I think we see that, we understand that. I don't have to dive too deep into the direct will of God. But it's the permissive one that we have to talk about, that we have to understand, that we have to wrap our mind around. What does it mean that he permissively decrees things? Let, Let me read this one theological quote. Permissive decrees are those decrees ordained events of God that are different from his direct decrees. An example of a permissive decree would be the fall of Adam into sin. God does not desire sin, yet he permitted its occurrence. He decreed that it would occur by permission, not by direct action of his will. So I think the most obvious story that we see this take place is Joseph and his brothers, right? So we see Joseph get sold into slavery. His brothers think about killing him. They say they not to. They sold him into slavery. Um, he goes rule. He goes all the way up. He's the man that's protecting all of the people from the famine. His brothers come back because they're starving. And here's what he says to them in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God did directly, did he directly tell the brothers to sin, to throw them away, to sell their brother into slavery? No, but he permitted it. Why? It's very clear so that many people should be kept alive so that God could get the glory. So there are direct decrees that God said, this is what it is and there's no other option. But there are permissive decrees. Now, they're all before the foundations of the world, but, but this makes it seem not so robotic and so structured. That God, in his infinite knowledge, in his infinite wisdom, decreed permissive decrees to let things ebb and flow, to let sin, that's how he utilizes sin in this fallen world so that he could get the glory, so that we could see his name lifted high. So that we're not a bunch of just, we can't do anything else other than, but he permits, he lets sin run its course. So the combo of those two degrees, the direct will and the permissive will, is how the decrees come together. It's how we start to understand all that's happening. Number five, that God's decrees are immutable, and we've covered this a little bit. But his decrees are unchanging, that there's nothing we can do to change God's mind. Because it's only in his will, it's only because of him. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Job 23. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Now this right here, if we just really start to think through this one, that God's decrees are immutable, that he does not change, can we not just say amen and praise God for that? I mean, just on a small micro scale, and I know enough of you to throw this shade right now, y'all get hangry, brothers, sisters, Maybe sisters more than brothers? I mean, how much do we let anything else control our decisions, control our minds, control our actions? 
I've ridden with a lot of you. And check this, you've ridden with me. We let all these things control the way that we act and react. And aren't we glad that we don't have a God that does that? That because of our sin, because of our struggles, because of what we do or how we run, it does not change his decree. It does not change his will. It does not change the way he views us, loves us, and provides for us. So when we think about this, oh, that's so strict. That's so that he never changes. Praise God for that. Because I'm sure that I would provoke him to anger over and over and over again. That I know that I've said things in my prayers that if he changes his mind, I would be smited, smitten, smit, right there on the spot, <laughs> dead, forgot about it. It would, it would be over, and we all would. But we see how David and the psalmist just lay out everything on the table in Psalms. And aren't we glad that we have a God that does not change? It is okay with those hard conversations. <clears throat> And the last thing I want to see before we get into the objections of God's decree is that we have to understand more than anything that God's decrees are good. They're good for us. There's a level of mystery that, that we won't quite understand, but we have to know his character, his nature, who he is, is a good God. Therefore, what he decrees will always be good. Psalms 196, or Psalm 196, nope, 119.68. You are good and do good. Teach me your decrees. You are good and do good. Teach me your decrees. First Timothy 4.4, for everything was created by God as good and nothing is to be rejected. It is to be received with thanksgiving. So what God has decreed is good and we should receive it with thanksgiving. And I know there's a lot of you in this room that are in a really sweet season of life. And that is a decree from God, and you should worship him for that. And I know there are some of you in this room that are a horrible season of life. And that is a decree of God. There's a purpose to your suffering, and you should rejoice in that. I don't know how we would have made it through some of our hard seasons if this wasn't a true knowledge of God. If he wasn't working everything together for our good, that his permissive decree wasn't lining everything up so that one day we could see how he orchestrated everything for our good. And listen, it might be eternity before we see that, church. It, it might be eternity before we see how he worked everything together because all we have is short 60, 80 years. And God's story is much bigger than that. But we can look and see all the martyrs of the New Testament. We can go to Hebrews 11 and go, that was all not just for nothing. There was purpose. There was a decree behind all of that. Now, before I go into some of the objections, I'm just going to be honest. I don't have a ton of time to dive into these. I want to throw some scriptures, throw some thoughts out to you, and, and let you wrestle with some of this. And, and it's okay that if you don't fully agree with me. It's, it's okay. This is, we can talk about this. In missional communities, we can talk about this. Let's go grab some breakfast. Because I, I was telling Daniel, I was telling my parents at the hospital, my niece was uh, born on Monday, Tuesday. But I was at the hospital on Monday, Tuesday, praying, preparing. This is one of the hardest sermons I've had to ever write, ever. Because there's so much expanse to hear. And I, there's so much mystery in this that I just don't like. I like to control. So, so I get it. There are questions, there's things that you're thinking through, you're wrestling with. Good, praise God. Don't run from him, press into him with these questions. Press into scripture with these thoughts. But the, the first one I want to address is this. If God has decreed all things, is he not the author of sin? 
If God has decreed all things, if he really from the foundation, from eternity, decreed all things, is he not the author of sin? The 1689, the, the Baptist Confession puts it this way. Yet God did this in such a way that he's neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any of its sin. So the first thing that we have to look at is God's character in nature. Psalm 107, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 119, you are good and do good. 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. We see in 1 John that God is love, that in him is no darkness at all. So it is not in God's character to decree evil, to be a part of evil. Excuse me, it's not in God's character to be a part of evil. So he's not the author of sin. He's not it. He can't lead men to sin. He's not the tempter that causes us to sin. Here's what one theologian says, based on 1 John 2.16. This denies that any evil comes from God. The phrase, all that is in the world, anticipates three categories of sin to follow, which account exhaustively every kind of sin. Desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes are pride and possessions. None of these are from the Father, and they are from the world. Therefore, God is not the author of sin. So we have to kind of wrap our minds around this mystery. How is it possible, but how can God be good? So either God is not good, or it's possible. Here's, here's another quote. The confession affirms both the Bible teaches both, but it does not attempt to reconcile them completely, only to declare what the Bible declares without diminishing one truth in favor of the other. So scripturally does not try to ratify both of these truths together. That we clearly see that there is sin in the world and that God decrees everything, but God is not the author of sin. And if the Bible doesn't try to answer this question, I don't know that I can. That there's clearly there, and we see this all, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. We see this dichotomy taking place, but if the Bible doesn't speak into it, I don't know that we should speak into it. We should just accept the mystery. That God works everything together for his good. That sin is here. God decreed sin, but he does not make us sin. This permissive decree that allows all this to happen. Let me just read two more verses for us. James 1, 13 through 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Romans 1, 24 through 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So we clearly see, and we see it in Job, we see it all through Scripture, that God lets us run in our sin. He lets us, lets us run wild in our sin nature, because that's what we want to do as humans. But does God decree sin, or does he permit sin? And that is the ultimate question. Does God decree it? Does he permit it? Does he let it take place? Because there's pointing all things to his glory, to his ultimate purpose. Yeah. Though God permits it, but he's not the author of it. We just have to kind of sit in the mystery 
of that. If God has decreed all things, doesn't it nullify human freedom? If it decrees all things, doesn't it nullify human freedom? Then, then, then where's my freedom? Where's my free will in all of this? The 1689 says that yet is liberty or contingency of secondary causes taken away, but rather established. So here's this mystery again that we have to walk into. That yes, God decrees everything, but clearly within scripture we see both. Ephesians 2.10 I think is just an easy way to help wrap our minds around this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do y'all see both in that? That God created our good works beforehand, but now we have to walk in them. So God decrees that we still walk in them. That it's still our responsibility to go, to follow after. Here's what one theologian says. The will of God does not imply a necessity in all future things, but a certainty in regard to the event. Thus the event was certain that Christ's bones should not be broken because God's will that that should not be. But there is no necessity imposed on the soldiers, their spears, and the secondary causes that that presents. So what he's saying is God decreed that Jesus' bones during the crucifixion should not be broken. But the soldiers could have done it, right? I mean, there's nothing impending them in that moment not to do that. So they had the full freedom of choice in that moment. But they decided not to, and God decreed it. So how does those two work together? Just go eat a mayonnaise sandwich, bro. I don't know. Acts 2.23, here's another perfect example. Thus Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of a lawless man. Did God decree that his son should die on the cross? Yes. He says it here. But what also does Peter say? That you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Does God decree and man act? Yes and yes. How do these things work together? Yes and yes. We should accept that mystery. Let me, I'm going to move a little quicker. We're running out of time. And I know y'all are bored. None of y'all think about these things. This is, I haven't slept over this. And you're like, okay, cool. I want to go to Moe's. Um, number three, if God has decreed all things, it means our choices and actions do not matter. I'll just throw this out there real quick because I would implore you to go study what the Baptist Confession of Faith talks about, secondary causes, right? So if God decrees all things, our actions do not matter, but we clearly see in Scripture that the ends and the means both matter to God. So he has decreed the ends, but we are also the means that help get to the ends, and he's decreed both. So our actions do, in fact, matter, that we are the means that God has chosen to help get to the ends, and I could try to explain it, but I'm just going to let Romans do it. Romans 10, 14 through 17. And how then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe into those who have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed and who has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. Are we commanded to go preach the good news of the gospel? Yes and amen. Matthew 28, we're the great commission, go and make disciples of all the nations. Acts 1, 8, you are witnesses, you are sent, we should go. So we're the means that help God's ends. The seat need us 
Well, Scripture says he does. Does he want us to serve in that capacity? Yes and amen. So instead of us going, well, I mean, if God decrees everything, I'm going to sit on my hands. That should give us a boldness to go, no, it's going to happen. So if I fumble through a gospel presentation, that's fine because God's decreed all this. He's bringing this together for his glory, so let's just go do it. I cannot fail if I'm following after the will of God. Let's do something instead of sitting in our hands because we are the means that lead to the ends and God has decreed both, so let's go get it. I mean, what makes sense of the Old Testament, the guys that are going into war that know that there's no way they can win and they keep running after it? Because they know that God is for them, that he has decreed it. Let's go get it. Now let's not just sit back in our hands. Everything we choose and do matters because our choices and actions contribute to the future ends God has designed. Now, there's two things I want to end with. What is the chief end of God's purposes, God's decrees? What is the end result of all of this? That, that we can get lost in some of the weeds, and some of the ebb and flow of how his decrees work. But this we should all be in agreement on. What is the chief end of all of this? Is the glory of God. And that should be all that we desire. All that we want is for God to be glorified in all that we do, say, and think, and pray. So whether we exactly agree on everything else, God's glory is it. Psalms 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Revelations 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So the chief end is God's glory, which is the best news for us. God's glory, that his name, his renown should be screamed from the rooftops. It's all that really matters. It's what we were created for. It's what we exist for, the glory of God, not ourselves. Now, now what's a real world life example of this? Because we can kind of, okay, this is theoretical. This is somewhat offensive. I don't agree with you, Gabe, on here and here. But like, what does this actually mean for us? And I know that in a second we're going to pray and if we've been baptized by immersion into the faith, we're going to take communion together. So let's look there. What does God's decree look like for the gospel of Jesus? What, what does God's decree look like in the life of Jesus? Because I know we can sit back and play the victim card pretty easily. Oh, woe is me. I can't believe God would decree this for me. I can't believe that I would be born for the purpose of this suffering. Woe is me. Woe is me. Let's just go to uh, flip with me to Isaiah 53. We're going to see God's decree for his only son. Isaiah 53. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. I'm going to read three big chunks of scripture so we can see how God's decree plays out in the life of his son and the purpose of it all. Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man and his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10. Yet was the will, the decree, the purpose of the Lord to crush him. And he was put to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the Lord shall prosper in his hands. God decreed that an innocent man should be crushed. He didn't deserve it. He had committed no sin. He had done nothing wrong. But God willed, he decreed, that his son should be crushed for our iniquities. Now, if, we, if the story stopped right there, how evil of a God is that? How evil of a God that would decree that his own son should die when he's clearly done nothing wrong? But we know that the story doesn't end there. Acts 2, I've read this once, I'll read it again. Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God in mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That it was God's definite plan and foreknowledge that this event take place. That his son would be crushed for our sin, for our iniquities. Church, God is not in control. And in the moment of all seeming to be lost, we see clearly that God is decreeing that he has foreknowledge of all of this. That for the purpose of his glory and for the redemption of his sons and daughters, it was his will, it was his decree that his son should be crushed, should be murdered for our sin. Now, how can we look at that and say that's bad news? How can we look at that and say that's evil? Because look at the glory and the name and the renown that's taking place because of that. That God is for us. That he has decreed all things for us. That he's in control. So it makes a ton of sense what Paul says in Romans 8, 28 through 30. As we know that those who are loved God, God has worked all things together for good for those called according to his purpose, to his will, to his decree. Verse 29. For those who be foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say if God is for us? Who can be against us? The decrees of God, the purpose of God, the will of God should breed in us such a confidence that all of this is decreed, willed, purposed by God. So let's go. Let's stop sitting here, sitting around arguing theology. Let the decrees of God stir up this confidence in him that leads to action, that leads to go-get-it-ness. Let's make disciples. Let's decree. Let's not wail in our own suffering or get too haughty in our own glory because all of this has been decreed by God for a purpose. It's not us, church. Our purpose is not us. It's him and his glory and his name and his renown, which he has decreed before the foundations of the world. So God's decree for us is good news. Because I can't put Ikea furniture together, let alone run a universe. God decreed, God purposed. Ephesians 2.10, we are created in Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, let's go. God has decreed it. Let's do it. Let's pray. God, we know that you're in control. 
And Father, forgive us when we've tried to limit that control. Forgive us when we have ultimately thought we were more important, that we were bigger, that we were smarter, that, we, that if we were God, we would do things different and it would work out better. Father, because we've all had those thoughts and we all repent from that. So Father, we see your decree, we see your foreknowledge all through Scripture. We see that you can create anything and everything by just your voice. Father, we, we know that your thoughts are not our thoughts, that your ways are not our ways, that you are way higher, that you don't think in sequential, that you don't depend on anybody else's knowledge or counsel or will, Father, that you have it all in your brain right now, that you know everything. And your knowledge and your wisdom and will isn't dependent on anything. And so, Father, we first and foremost say we don't get it. We, we try our best to study your word. We try our best to wrap our minds around you. But if you really are a God of that size, of that power, there's no way our finite minds can ever comprehend it. But God, we know this, that you're good. We know this, that you love us, that you're working everything together for our good. We've seen throughout Scripture, throughout history, how your decrees have played out. We've seen that there's moments where it seems like there's no hope, that there's no control, and we see how you immediately turn that around for your glory. So God, let this be a comforting blanket over us this morning, that no matter what situations we're walking into this morning, what's happening in our house, what's happening in, in our heart, what's happening in our family and our relationships, God, there's a purpose behind it. That this isn't accidental, that we haven't walked into something that you have not controlled, that you have not foreordained. You're not surprised by the situations that's going on in our life, Father. You've decreed it. There's a purpose for it. So let us rest. Let us quit freaking out about things we cannot control. God, this, this knowledge of your decree makes so many scriptures start to make sense. Matthew 6, 25, what, what does worrying do? Does it add any more to our life? If you take care of the flowers of the field and the birds of the air, how much more will you provide for us? Because you've decreed it all. You've planned it all. You've purposed it all. So church, if you're in here, if you're in a fantastic season, praise God, give him all the glory because you've done none of it. Church, if you're in here and you're suffering and you're on your last leg, give glory to God because there's a purpose to it. The fear of, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Look for where he's at. Look at what he's doing. Father, thank you for not taking us through purposeless suffering, purposeless pain. If you orchestrated all of this, and we see this played out most obvious in the treatment of your son, who you decreed would be crushed for our iniquities, but now is sitting at the right hand of you, accomplishing what you purposed for him, which is the glory of your name and the redemption of many sons and daughters, and for that we worship. So church, as we get ready to take communion here in a second, as we break the bread, which represents his body, as we dip it in the juice, which represents his blood, let us remember that he has purposed 
everything and through communion, through the table, we see that most clearly played out. So Father, you are a God of purpose, you are a God of will, and you are working everything together for our good. We love you. We praise you. Thank you for loving us, for creating us for a purpose. That's your name we pray. Amen.